0: The Archdiocese of Chicago, through the generosity of Sacred Heart Parish in Winnetka, now presents The Word on Fire. Peace be with you. Friends, I want to talk to you today about families. You hear a lot of politicians, sometimes even religious people today, talking about family values. And I think the Bible certainly believes in family values, but I have the suspicion that what politicians and public people today mean by it And what the Bible means by it are often very different things. Let's look first at some choice things that Jesus said about families, and they might be a little shocking to us, especially when we hear them all at once. Remember in the Gospels, the man says to him, Lord, I'll be your follower, but let me first go home and bury my father. Seems like a reasonable request. What does Jesus say? Let the dead bury their dead. Remember another time a follower says to him, Lord, I'll be your disciple, but first let me go and and settle things with my people. Let me settle my affairs with my family. Jesus replies, no one that sets his hand to the plow and looks back is fit for the kingdom of God. How about the woman that cried out to him, how blessed are the breasts that nursed you and the womb that bore you. Jesus says, blessed rather are those who hear the word of God and keep it. Then there's the most devastating one. Jesus says, you think I've come for peace? I've come for the sword. And with this sword, I will divide families, father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, and daughter against mother. Well, what gives with this? What's going on with this language that seems so out of step with what we take to be family values? Well, I think what's going on is a complete reconfiguration of what we should mean by family and the values of family. I think what Jesus is implying is this. There's one great thing that matters. What matters is doing God's mission, living the life God wants us to lead. If anything gets in the way of that, even the most beautiful and precious things, even the family, if they get in the way of that, they're a problem. And he's come to divide. Let me try to illustrate it with a couple of stories from the Scripture that I think give us a very good indication of this biblical vision. The first one is that wonderful story. You can read it in the first book of Samuel. It's a story of Hannah. She's the mother of the prophet Samuel. Hannah was childless. And, of course, in the society of her time, that was a great shame, a woman to be without children. And so she came every day to the temple, and she prayed, Lord, that I might have a child. One day, in answer to her prayer, an angel came and said, you will have a child. You will have a son, and you must dedicate this child to the Lord from his birth. Hannah becomes pregnant, and she gives birth to this son for whom she had prayed. And then the wonderful moment. And let me read to you now from the first book of Samuel. Once Samuel was weaned, Hannah brought him up with her, along with a three-year-old bull, an ephah of flour, and a skin of wine, and presented him at the temple of the Lord in Shiloh. After the boy's father had sacrificed the young bull, Hannah, his mother, approached Eli and said, As you live, my Lord, I am the woman who stood near you here, praying to the Lord. I prayed for this child, and the Lord granted my request. Now I, in turn, give him to the Lord. As long as he lives, he shall be dedicated to the Lord. And Hannah left Samuel there. Extraordinary story, isn't it? Here's a woman who had prayed her heart out that she might have a child, and the Lord responded, and she had this son, Samuel. And then she gives him up. After he was weaned, the Bible said, so maybe after a few months or maybe a a year or so at the most. Can you imagine a young mother with a tenderness between a mother and a child now surrendering this child to the Lord? we hear that story we might say well it's a little bit odd it seems almost like psychological manipulation the mother forcing the child into a life that she wants but not him that's not the biblical perspective hannah knew from revelation what the mission of this child was to be and she served her child best in love precisely by allowing him and empowering him to fulfill that mission You know, in the biblical perspective, it's not so much what we want. It's what God wants for us. The purpose of life is not to satisfy our desires. The purpose of life is to discern what God wants us to be and do, and then to have the courage to do it. Let me give you a more up-to-date version of this story. I love this. It also will strike us probably as a bit odd. I heard it from an old priest he was talking about his vocation, how he came to his vocation. He said one day, he was in his eighth grade classroom, and in came the Monsignor, who was the pastor of the parish. And he spoke briefly to the kids, and then he pointed to five of the boys. He said, you, 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 and you are going to Quigley, the high school seminary. Well, four of them went to Quigley. The one who didn't was the teller of this story. He went to another high school, didn't want to go to the seminary. A few months later, this Monsignor was visiting that high school. He's striding through the hallways, and he sees this kid. He says to him, what are you doing here? I thought I told you to go to Quigley. And the young man looked up, frightened, and he said, well, that's right, Monsignor, you did, but I don't want to go to Quigley monsignor looked at him and said well who cares what you want now i heard that story from this priest at his 50th anniversary that monsignor saw something i don't know what it was i don't know how he made that decision why he chose those five kids to go to quickly but he saw something in them he discerned in them a vocation god's mission and he summoned them to it now We look at this story and say, well, I don't know, shouldn't you let the kid himself decide? And sure, that always plays a role. We're not not coerced into things. But what I love is the Monsignor's attitude was really much more biblical. It's not so much what you want, not so much our desires, but God's mission that's very objective. And we find life precisely by responding to that mission. You know, something I experience out here, I'm at the seminary quite a bit, is the same phenomenon. There are people, in my experience, who have left the seminary and shouldn't have. What I mean is people who really do have a vocation. They decide, for whatever reason, that, no, they, they better leave the seminary. Now, in some cases, that's a good decision. But I would suggest, in other cases, it's not. Is not so much what I want, but what God wants for me, and then moving with confidence into that. You know, I've used two stories there of seminary vocation. I can use the same stories, though, about marriage. If two people come to me and they say, we want to get married, and I'll say, now, why do you want to get married? Well, because we love each other. We love being with each other. We want to spend our lives together. My response as a priest is, that's wonderful, but that's not enough. Marriage in the church is not simply a ratification of people's mutual love. When people get married in the church, what they should be saying in their heart of hearts is God has called us to this relationship. And our mission from God is to be married to each other. We will act our vocation out precisely in each other's presence. Only when two people can say that, God has summoned us. Not so much what we want, but what God wants. Then they really have this vocation of marriage in the church. There's a wonderful New Testament example of this principle. The story, we all know it well, the finding in the temple. Let me read to you a little bit from that story. Remember, of course, the Lord Jesus had wandered from his parents, and they had spent a day looking for him in the caravan. When they know that he's gone, they come back to Jerusalem looking for him. After three days, they found him in the temple, sitting in the midst of the teachers, listening to them and asking them questions. And all who heard him were astounded at his understanding and his answers. When his parents saw him, they were astonished, And his mother said to him, "'Son, why have you done this to us? Your father and I have been looking for you with great anxiety.' And he said to them, "'Why were you looking for me? Did you not know that I must be in my father's house?' Surprising, strange to our ears. And don't we naturally sympathize with Mary's question? Here they are looking for their son who's been lost for three days. "'Why did you do this to us?' We can feel her anxiety and even that little tinge of anger in her voice. Why did you do this to me and to your father? And then Jesus' surprising and startling answer. Didn't you realize this is where I was supposed to be? I'm in my father's house. This is my mission. You know, the wonderful truth here is Jesus is not the one who's lost. He knows exactly where he is, where he's supposed to be like the hannah story we see here a story of separation not so much sentimental attachment the family all turned in on itself but a story of separation when mary and joseph realized they must let this child go to be who he is supposed to be to live out his mission from god and listen now they are most a family precisely at that moment This is the only substantive glimpse we get of the Holy Family. There are all kinds of legends and stories about the Holy Family, but this is the only really biblical vision we have of them. And it's a story of separation. Maybe that's precisely what their holiness is. They let him go. They empower him for his mission. Folks, I think this is the deepest truth about families and family values. Aristotle, the great Greek philosopher, said this about friendship, but I think it applies to marriage or relationship or family. He said, a friendship is real and authentic only when the two friends are both in love with a good or a truth beyond them. That's wonderful. In other words, the friendship will not flourish as long as it's simply the two friends gazing at each other fond of each other affectionate for each other it's only when they found some greater thing beyond both of them that they are both committed to now the friendship will flourish i would say now the marriage will flourish now the family will flourish only when there's a good beyond them when the family turns in on itself it tends to become dysfunctional people acting out their neediness in each other's presence the family is most itself When it says, we must be a place where our missions from God are encouraged. John Paul II said, the family is an ecclesiola. It's a little church. That's a beautiful description. The church is the place where all of our missions from God are fostered. They're brought to life. That's precisely what happens, I think, in a good and holy family. Each person looks to the other and says, what is it that God wants you to be? And now my task, my role, is to give you the grace and the confidence and the courage to realize that mission. Friends, I would say in closing, maybe the best and holiest thing we can do in our families and for our family members is to let each other go in God's service. God bless you.